Okay, let's take a little trip this morning. Can we do that? Let's go see some of the wonders of the world. So where shall we go? Would you rather go to the Grand Canyon or the Great Pyramid? Would you rather go see the harbor of Rio de Janeiro or the hanging gardens of Babylon? Would you rather visit Mount Everest or how about we fly to Peru and see Machu Picchu? Now, Maybe there's other places you want to go. It's interesting over the years that several folks and entities have put together lists of the great wonders of the world. Some of the wonders of the world are natural wonders, like the Grand Canyon or Mount Everest or the Northern Lights. But many of the things that appear on the list of the wonders of the world, most of them, in fact, are man-made wonders, like the Great Pyramids, or the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, or the Great Wall of China. This week and the next three weeks, we want to do a short series on what the Bible says about humanity, about human beings, about you and I. Now, why should we talk about us? Haven't we come to worship God this morning? Aren't we supposed to be people who are centered on God and God alone? Why spend four weeks talking about human beings? Isn't the Christian faith all about magnifying God above all others. Aren't we taking a big risk by talking about the wonders, the amazing realities of what God says about us? Well, maybe in one sense we are, but to affirm the latter, that is, to affirm the fact that all of us should be centered, focused on God above all else, is not to deny the former. It's not to deny the reality of what God has to say about us his human creatures. If we think that whatever God does, man can't do, or whatever man does, God must have nothing to do with it, if we make that kind of a dichotomy, then we will, in fact, ironically, not be as God-centered as we are supposed to be. We will be off the mark. Let me even say it this way. If we make such a false dichotomy, thinking only that what God does, man has nothing to do with, and what man does, God has nothing to do with. If we make those kinds of dichotomies, we will actually fail to understand the entire Scripture. To prove that point, let's begin right here in Psalm 8. And one of Christianity's greatest claims, of course, is the fact that God became human, truly human, in Jesus. And one of the most neglected claims of Christianity, especially these days, is that God did this so that in Jesus, you and I might become truly human as well. I think we see this laid out for us in Psalm 8, where the psalmist helps us to see first the majesty of God, second, the authority of man, 
And then lastly, somewhat surprisingly perhaps, the salvation of Christ. The majesty of God in all of creation, the authority of man over all creation, and the salvation of Christ of creation entirely. Now first, notice here in Psalm 8, the majesty of God. Did you notice the psalm begins and ends with the same words, the same refrain? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majestic. The word means or expresses the psalmist's conviction that everywhere he looks, everything he sees, everything that captures his attention and evokes his awe and his admiration, all of it leads him to worship the creator, the God who made it all, who is the only one who is rightly credited for its existence. This psalm, from beginning to end, is about the majesty of God. It is a God-centered psalm. Do you see the majesty of God everywhere you look? This psalm makes plain that the majesty of God is on display for all to see simply by looking around at the world that God has made. As you look around, Are you impressed by the things that God has made, the world in which we live our lives? Does the creation lead you to worship God and his majesty? You know, the Bible scoffs at the atheist who apparently has no problem looking around at the world and even being impressed by the world that he observes, but then somehow comes to the conclusion that there is no creator responsible for it all. The Bible even claims that the atheist has suppressed the truth, that something about God is clearly to be seen in the things that have been made. Now, it's no use arguing here that the atheist is not being honest about what he knows must be true, way down deep inside, trying to convince someone, as you probably know, that way down deep, they actually know that they aren't telling the truth is not usually a fruitful way to have a conversation with somebody. What is actually more frustrating, I think, when we take the entirety of Scripture together and using this psalm as a lens, is that we theists, we who affirm the reality of God, a God who made all things, we tend to see God only when science seems to be stumped at any given moment. We are quick to say that What cannot be explained is due to the supernatural, leaving God in that murky category and leaving him out of those things that otherwise have a natural explanation. It's a serious mistake. We must not make that mistake because making that kind of mistake tends to advance the perception that the entire Christian faith is left into a category loosely called religion, which is separated from another category, usually called science or the natural world. We need to recover and insist on our confession, we just said a minute ago, that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, finish it, maker of heaven and earth. The creator God and his majesty are meant to be seen not when we have run out of explanations 
for some phenomena, but precisely when things begin to make sense. The majesty of God is there for us to see, not hiding behind realities that we can't see. The Christian of all people must never get bored or unimpressed with the world that God has made because it is there to proclaim to us his majesty. By the way, if we do not see through the universe, through the world that God has made, to the creator who stands behind it all, there really is only one other option left. And it's not the atheist's perception. It's not the atheist's perspective. It's actually the pagan's perspective. You see, in the pagan world, the creation itself was worshipped as God. The material world, so mysterious but obviously wonderful, was believed to be filled with power and significance. The one thing you could not do, as every pagan knew, was ignore the created world. And that is still true today, of course, isn't it? We have our houses and our furnaces to keep us warm, but the Arctic blast outside is there to captivate your attention. And it got all of our attention. I was uh, at Walmart the other day just trying to grab some chicken. And I was in a hurry because I was trying to get to a prayer night. And I had to give up buying my chicken because the line was so long trying to check out because everybody was captivated by the Arctic blast that was on its way. So here's the point. If you do not see the majesty of the creator God in the natural phenomena that affects us every day, then the natural phenomena itself, impossible to be ignored forever, bringing awe and wonder to us all, it will become the object of our worship. When it comes to the natural world, the biblical perspective is what stands out against every other perspective. It's Christianity. It's the Bible, which actually gives us a different perspective. All of us cannot help but see the majesty, the awesomeness of the creation. Let's just go outside for a moment without our coats, and you're going to be left in awe and wonder, right? But you know what is even more amazing? It's the fact that as the psalmist says here in verse 4, the wonders of the world are simply the result of what the creator God can do with his fingers. So majestic is the God who makes with his fingers the majestic creation, verse 2 intimates, that God can fend off the strongest display of human power, with the collective might of what? How about a bunch of babies? That's what it says. Go ahead and shoot your rockets and missiles. God can silence them with the power of what comes out of a baby's mouth. But this psalm is not written as a celebration of God's triumph over his enemies. It's written as a celebration of God's majesty seen in creation. Indeed, in his intentions for creation. One can easily see that Psalm 8 is related to the very first chapter in our Bibles, right? Anyone reading either Psalm 8 or Genesis 1 is clearly meant to walk away from it, not just with an awe of God, 
but rather in awe of God because of the world that he has made. The thing about this creation, however, is that from Genesis 1, and clearly we're about to see in Psalm 8, God's world, God's creation is not static. God finishes his work by the end of day six, but no one can get the sense, reading Genesis 1, that, that, is, that that's the end. There's no more work to be done. Rather, creation is a project that is intended to go somewhere. How does it go there? How does it get to where it's finished end? How is it supposed to get to where God intends for it to go? Psalm 8 tells us that as well. So if you were looking at this psalm, what would you say it is about? The ESV has at the top, how majestic is your name? And you can see why I would say that. It's the refrain, the beginning at the end. It's about the majesty of God, no doubt. But did you notice, not just the first verse and the last verse, but in between, the psalm seems to be about someone else. This psalm is about human beings as much as it is about God. And what it has to say about human beings is, uh, well, quite optimistic, quite, quite idealistic, some might say. It's, it's a positive statement about humanity, is it not? Psalm 8 is not only about the majesty of God, it is also about the authority of man, of mankind, of human beings. Now, it would obviously be a misreading of the psalm if we somehow come away from it more impressed with human beings than we are with God himself, whose glory is established over and above the heavens. Nevertheless, the psalmist evidently does not see the glorious authority of human beings who have been crowned with glory and honor, he says in verse five, as somehow a threat to the majesty of God. You can't say, well, we have the majesty of God and now if we turn our attention to the authority of man crowned with glory and honor that somehow we are going to now diminish the majesty of God. The psalmist doesn't think so. Because by God's own design, these two things are meant to go together. Get this, Christian. The majesty of God is meant to be seen all the more in the authority that he has given to his human creatures. Now, to be sure, at first glance, when we look around, perhaps we would say human beings are not that impressive, when you compare the human being to God's finger work, he says here, like, for example, what can God do with his fingers? Oh, the moon and the stars. How about that? Our work seems rather small and insignificant. What can you do? What can you make that can compare to what God could make with his fingers? Show us the greatest ingenuity and might of human beings that the world has ever known. Let's go see some of those wonders, yes? And all of it will be dwarfed every single time by what God can do, as it were, with his pinky. 
Okay, now, so many of us city dwellers would probably do ourselves a lot of good if we, from time to time, would go back out into nature and get that sense of feeling small again. Get away from the lights and the pollution and just sit there in the darkness in some remote place and stare up into the heavens and get lost in the vastness of the universe that we can see. Let it lead us to feel even smaller as we contemplate the vastness of the universe that we can't see. Or perhaps we need to go on a hike up some majestic mountain and feel tiny as we gaze out over the enormous space below. There's something wonderfully necessary about getting ourselves humbled from time to time by the enormous boundaries of creation and the little space that we seem to take up in it. Okay, so here's another way you can do it. You can get the same effect by considering the little space that we take up in history. Read about some ancient civilization or empire and reflect on the fact that you and I are here only after so many have come and gone before us. Take a walk through a cemetery every now and then. And remember that we will all soon find ourselves among the realm of the departed. I'm not trying to be unnecessarily morbid here, but as the psalmist prays in Psalm 39, 4, it would actually be an answer to prayer for you and I to know our end, to consider that we have a limited number of days, and to live with the awareness of how fleeting we are. But the whole point of an exercise like that, go out into some remote place, gaze up into the heavens, stand on a mountain, read history, walk through a cemetery, the whole point of an exercise like that is not to end there. It's just the starting place because the psalmist is led from there to ask this question. Why then does God care so much about us? We are so small, so fleeting, so seemingly insignificant. Why does God care about human beings? I know that many, of course, on this day may be asking the opposite question. Why doesn't God seem to be mindful of us? There's a reality that many experience, that sense of feeling worthless and wondering if if God cares But that sense of affliction does not come from what the Bible says about us. The Bible does not say, you don't matter, you're insignificant, God doesn't care. It says the opposite over and over and over again, including here. It says God cares so much about human beings, about you, about me. Why? Why would God care about creatures who seem to be so insignificant, so small, so fleeting? Well, how can we be so sure that the creator God is mindful of us and that he cares about us? Because the psalmist says in verse five, look at it. Human beings have been created a little lower than the heavenly heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. Now remember, he's reflecting on Genesis one. And it's in Genesis 1 that we are told of man's extraordinary, humanity's extraordinary creation. 
Human beings, the psalmist remembers from that story, are made just a little lower than whom? Well, the Hebrew text of Psalm 8 actually says, made a little lower than God. Um, The Greek translation of the Hebrew text says a little less than angels. This is why some of you said that. Uh, Evidently, this is because the Greek translation of the Hebrew text was just a little bit shy, didn't quite want to say what the Hebrew text actually says. The Hebrew is undoubtedly correct, as most commentaries will tell you, because it's reflecting on what the Genesis account says is so unique about human beings and God's creation that God cares so much about us. Human beings, the Bible makes plain, are second in all that is real, all reality, only to God himself, and therefore are first in all created reality. Let me say it this way to try to get your attention. We are as much like God as it is possible for a creature to be. That's why he cares. Now, from the perspective of God, there remains an infinite distance between him and us. He is uncreated. We are creatures. But seen from a different perspective, um, maybe from the perspective of uh, a chimpanzee, we are closer to God, much closer than we are to them. Saw a video this week of a, was it a chimpanzee? Orangutan? Okay, well, orangutan. It's taking a picture with a couple human beings at its arms draped. Looks look so human-like. You know what the Bible says? Yeah, that's amazing. Stand in awe, stand in wonder. But those human beings are much more like God than that orangutan is like the human being. That's what the Bible says. Compare us to God and the distance is so far. Compare us to the rest of God's creation and we are much more like God than anything else. Am I making this up? Well, the psalmist does not use these exact words, but what he is undoubtedly referring to is the fact that in the creation account, we are told that we human beings are made how? in the image of God. Nothing else in all creation has that characteristic. And it's a big deal, a very big deal. Again, consider, you and I, simply by the fact that we are human beings, are as much like God as it is possible for a creature to be. What exactly does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, Bible scholars have quite a bit to say about this and have over the years. All sorts of ideas are put forward. But here's the thing. The Bible actually never quite tells us exactly what it means to be made in the image of God. It is simply enough to say, according to the Bible, that we human beings were created to be like God 
and to represent God to the rest of creation. The orangutan is looking at the human beings. It's supposed to be like, well, that's what God is like. (laughs) If we want to know more about what it means to be made in the image of God, since that simply means that we're made to be like God and represent God, then here's what we'd have to do. We have to know more about God, who he is and what he does so that we can know who we are meant to be and what we are supposed to do. But here in Psalm 8, the focus is on the fact that as God's image bearers, he has given to us authority, authority to rule over all of his created order. To us, as made in the image of God, image bearers, we have been given the function of having dominion over the works of God's hands. Verses 6 to 8 says it explicitly. It's because we are human beings made in the image of God, that we are given the remarkable privilege of ruling and reigning over God's creation. Here's how he says it. God has put all things under our feet. Verse six says it. And this remarkable authority in no way is meant to jeopardize the majesty of God. In fact, it is meant to enhance it. And that's how Psalm 8 ends. God is majestic. Just open your eyes. Look at the world God made. Feel the cold when you leave here in a minute and say, God is amazing. That's what you should say. All right? And human beings have been given the enormous privilege of ruling over it, of showing to the world, to the rest of creation, what God is like. So everyone lived happily ever after, right? There we go. End of the story. Well, the Bible, of course, tells us a lot about the rest of the story. And the fact that from Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, this rule of humanity over God's creation meant to be entirely benign, benevolent, in fact, beneficial, seems to have gone sideways. There's more to the story of God's world than the seemingly blissful ignorance with which one might read Psalm 8. But it's the Bible itself that tells us that we need to read this very same Psalm from a different perspective. You cannot stop Psalm 8 with simply these two points. Sorry, you're like, oh, sermon's done early. No. Too bad. (laughs) There's another point that has to be made. The Bible itself tells us there's another point that has to be made. Just like Psalm 8 is a reflection on Genesis 1 and 2, so Hebrews chapter 2, you should turn there. You've got to turn there. Hebrews chapter 2 in the New Testament is a reflection on Psalm 8. And it's this passage that urges us, demands that we read Psalm 8 now from the perspective of the salvation of Christ, the achievement of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So are you in Hebrews 2? You have to be because if you're going to be a Christian, you have to read Psalm 8 with a bit of a different lens now, now that Christ has come. So here's how, we, here's how we start this. Listen, 
We must not talk about Jesus and salvation in terms other than what we've been saying so far. Did you hear that? If we're gonna talk about the gospel, we're gonna talk about Jesus, we're gonna talk about salvation, you must not talk about it with different terms than what we've already been saying from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 leads us into the gospel story. If we set aside the story of God and his world and the authority that we human beings are meant to exercise in it, then we are not telling the gospel story found in the Bible. This is the story in which the salvation of Christ is meant to be understood. It's about the majesty of God in the world he made and the authority of us as his image bearers to reflect that majesty to the rest of creation. So here's how Hebrews chapter two begins. Look at the very first word, very first verse. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So obviously, the author of Hebrews is saying, you better pay attention now to what we're about to say. In verse three, he asks this question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So get your mind around what we've been saying so far and now put this together. The author of Hebrews here clearly thinks that what he's talking about, what he's about to say is critically important And as he begins to expound this great story of salvation that you must pay attention to, you must not neglect, what text does he turn to? Psalm 8. That's where he goes. The story of salvation then is the story of how the creator God has acted to save his creation and to restore the rightful beneficial reign of his image bearers over that creation. Is that how you tell the story? Is that how you tell the gospel? God makes a world, makes us to be his image bearers, and now God has come to save his world and restore our place as his image bearers over that creation. Is that, Christian, the good news that the world is hearing us tell? So look at verse five. The author of Hebrews now begins to make use of Psalm eight. And here's what he says. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. This great salvation, he says, is all about the world to come in which, as Psalm eight says, God has put everything in his creation under the control of his human beings. That's what this salvation is about. It's about a coming world where everything's been put back the way it's supposed to be. But in this world to come, we are not led to imagine a different world altogether. We're explicitly told to think of the world that now is only as it was always meant to be. That's the new world. God's original intention for his creation and human authority over it still stands. Now, when we come to verse eight, look what it says here. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, thank you. There's a moment of realism, isn't it? You know, pollsters like to ask the opinion of American voters how the current president is doing. Everybody likes to ask that. What score would you give him? What's his favorability score? Well, let me ask you this question. What is the favorability score you give to us as human beings 
ruling over God's world. How are we doing? Remember, by the way, this is a collective score, not just the score you would maybe like to give yourself. Some will, of course, be more optimistic than others, but no one is going to give humanity a perfect score. Again, just like the author of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It seems then there is still a world to come, yes? We aren't there yet. But we must be looking, but what we must be looking for is this in this promised world to come is not just the world itself put right. We must look for human agents, his image bearers to be put right again. When we see that, or if we could see that, we would have our first glimpse of a new world. So while at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to human beings, Verse 9 goes on to say, in bold relief, you should probably underline this. I imagine Hebrews is probably a sermon. It's at this point that he starts pounding the pulpit, yes? It's at this point they were like, pay attention. You don't see everything in subjection to us. It looks like the new world has not yet dawned, but we see him, namely Jesus. You should feel the sense of excitement here. I'm just looking for some evidence of it out there. You should start to say, ah, this is what the story is all about. We see one who, like us, was made lower than, the author Hebrews is using his Greek translation, so lower than the angels. But we know from Hebrews, uh, from the Hebrew text of Psalm 8, lower than God himself. Yes, indeed, right? The New Testament tells us the one who emptied himself when he took on our humanity, the one who was, Hebrews 2, 17 says, made like his brothers in every respect. We see him. And since we see him, we have caught our first glimpse of the new world that is coming. What the author of Hebrews is at pains to get us to see in Psalm 8 is that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, really did become one of us. Don't forget that as you've now put away all your Christmas decor for the next several months, right? What are we holding on to in light of incarnation? The the Son of God became one of us, fully human, In fact, catch this, he was more human than you or I have ever been. You see, what verse 9 is telling us is that Jesus was made lower than the angels, a little less than God for a little while. But he has now, look what it says back in chapter 1, verse 4. He has now become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is crowned with glory and honor, the way God intends for you and I to be. He has already taken his place over all creation as a human being. With the coming of Jesus, 
his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, for the first time in all of history, there is a human being who has authority over all creation. Everything does his bidding. And that's the reason why the whole argument of Christianity is centered on Jesus of Nazareth. All our hope is in him. All our hope. But the specific hope that I want us to focus on in the next three weeks is the hope of this in particular. Listen, it's the hope of becoming in Jesus and through Jesus, the human beings you were meant to be. It's a hope that awaits us in the future, yes, to be sure. But precisely because Jesus has already entered into that future on our behalf, it is a hope that begins to appear shockingly, surprisingly, in all sorts of places right now in the present. This is the reason that you and I should be so excited about Jesus. And the reason you and I should seek to commend Jesus to every single human being, it's because in Jesus, we can begin to be transformed ourselves. And when we are transformed in the image of Christ, we begin to see transformation break out in all of creation in the very places he has called you and me to be. Pretty exciting, huh? Well, let's see it in this series. Let's pray together. Now, Lord Jesus, open our eyes to the reality of what you have achieved for us. Of course, there's so much that could be said, but here's where we want to put our attention now for the next few weeks. Because you became like us, taking on the fullness of our humanity, in fact, being more human than we've ever been. It's precisely for that reason that we worship you, that we come to you, so that in you and through you, and only in you and through you, can we become the true human beings we were meant to be, crowned with glory and honor. If we try to exercise that kind of authority apart from you, things will go horribly wrong. And history bears that out. But as we, your people, your church, worship you, submit to you, and come to you, commune with you, the true human being, we find our own selves being transformed a little taste of the world to come. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, new creation. The old is past. Behold, all things are becoming new. So would you give us this sense of hope, this sense of anticipation, this sense of excitement as we worship you, that we can begin by your grace to begin to see all things made new. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.